we're going through the book of Isaiah this, this morning. And we've, we've been looking through every book of the Bible. The Bible is the best-selling, most banned, most quoted, most studied, challenged, historically anchored and proven book that has, God has used to change billions of lives and shape countries around the world over the centuries. And we've been going through this year-long teaching series every week looking at a different book of the Bible to discover its overall message of what it says about God, the Creator, about humanity, about how it changes our lives today. And so far in the story, we've been introduced to the God and Creator who out of His deep love creates humans to, for relationship with Him, to walk in His life-giving ways. But throughout history, humans... We foolishly turn away to trust and serve in anything else other than God. Rejecting the life that he gives us again and again and finding security in the wrong things and in turn committing acts of injustice and corruption. But still he chooses to pursue us in his kindness to restore us into the peaceful life that he created us to live. So if you think of the Bible as a show, and like on Netflix perhaps, where there's different seasons and episodes, uh, season one we went through was the five books of Moses, the formation of the nation of Israel. And season two was a detailed history of kings and kingdoms. And over the last few weeks, we were in season three when we walked through the wisdom literature. And now we're in season four, the prophetic writings. What are prophets? The Bible Project, one of the ways they would describe prophets were covenantal watchdogs, making sure that the covenant is being protected, this agreement between God and humanity. Are we upholding to our side of the agreement in this covenant of being in relationship with God and we will live in these life-giving ways? They would, they would call accountability to faithfulness, justice, integrity. The prophets would speak on behalf of God, would, would hear from God whether uh, a theophany of, God, of God's like presence visible or they would have a vision from God, or they would hear from God, and then they would speak on behalf of God what he's saying to the people, to the nations, to kings. And they would sometimes give flashbacks to the history before and remind people of the history that God has brought them through, but always, also, they would also bring flash-forwards where you get this foretaste of what God is promising in the future, and they would speak, of course, of what God wants to do in the present. There were conditional prophecies. If you live in this way, God will do this. But if you live in this other way, God will respond accordingly. So it's, it's up to you for some of those things. And then there's also unconditional prophecies where whatever happens, God will accomplish his purposes. He declares the end from the beginning, and this is what he's going to do, whether you participate in that or not but you can choose whether you're going to be a part of that or you're going to be on the outside 
of that. The prophets would sometimes warn God's people and sometimes comfort God's people. And in the book of Isaiah, we've got both. Sometimes back and forth, and we'll get more into that. Isaiah, I, I told, my, my son's name is Isaiah, and I said, today, we're, we're focusing on the book of Isaiah. Do you know what that's about? No, not really. Do you know what your name means? Yeah, God helps me. Yeah, God, God saves. Yahweh saves. The, it's, it comes from the Hebrew phrase, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, Yeshayahu. It's, it's transliterated into English like that. It means Yahweh saves. Yesha Yahu, Yahweh saves. Our culture loves speaking in accountability, truth to power, of confronting the structures and the power that is, and bringing accountability, saying there's corruption here, there's systemic injustice, there's wrongdoing behind the scenes. And the interesting thing is that there's so much of this truth to power and accountability and pointing of the finger and judgment that who can stand? Actually, every, everything is being dethroned and actually, if, if we're being honest, everyone would be torn down. No one can stand because none of us live up to our own uh, standards all the time, let alone the standards of our, our culture, our nation and definitely not according to the standards of God. And, and, and so it would seem like there would be just maybe a remnant, a small group of people who would be able to stand or just barely get by uh, according to this, this judgment that's going around the world. And Isaiah is talking about judgment and truth to power, speaking against corruption, calling for integrity and faithfulness. And, and there's this talk about a remnant of very few who actually survive the judgment or who pass as not guilty. The book of Isaiah is most quoted in the New Testament aside from the book of Psalms. So many times throughout the New Testament, the book of Isaiah is used as this, remember what God said then, this is what he's doing now as a fulfillment of this. There's, there's a lot of key passages in the book of Isaiah that are uh, brought up year after year during Christmas time and Easter. And in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, uh, we see that this is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. This is uh, the, uh, the southern kingdom when there was the, 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 the nation of Israel split into, and you read about this in the book of Kings and of Chronicles, uh, the, the kingdom split in two to Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And this is focused on the southern kingdom. This is a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. So these are different kings that lived in that time. We get more context from this from Kings and Chronicles. If you missed that, uh, we have that in our previous sermons, um, maybe four or five weeks ago, maybe more than that. Um, and, and also in that context that you'll read in Kings and Chronicles is there's talk about how certain kings would allow these idols to, to spring up, 
people would be building idols and they would leave them in these high places for worship, for shrines, Asherah poles, idols to Baal. And some kings would dethrone these, these idols. They would t- cast them down, destroy them. And then other kings would allow new ones to be built up. And these, these high places, and there's idols everywhere. It was like idols are us. And it was kind of like how you have a Starbucks on every corner. You'd have like idols on every corner. Is that different? I don't know. Oh, don't say that. Hold on, let me just drink some coffee right now. I enjoyed coffee yesterday and today. It's, it's not a sin. Unless the Lord convicts you of it. Yeah. All right, and, and the, the, the nation also had alliances like security blankets with neighboring countries and nations. Uh, there was compromise, there was corruption from the kings and also in the whole nation. And then there were threats from Assyria and Babylon, neighboring nations that would be coming in and plundering and bringing the, the people of Israel and Judah into exile. So that's the context here. And we, we see in chapters 1 to 5, Isaiah prophesies, he starts to prophesy about these various things before chapter 6, where he's actually officially commissioned as a prophet to the nation. Um, but he's already working in that office, and then God commissions him in chapter 6. And that's the year that King Uzziah died. And they're like, oh, the king died. Like, there's this instability, there's a, a power vacuum, there's a, a question of what stability is there. And in that moment, Isaiah is brought before the, the throne room of God, and he sees God on the throne. And God is declaring, I am the king who sits here, who will always be here, who is always stable. And Isaiah sees this, this majestic vision, and like, like we're singing, he's, he's seeing the angels, they're covering their faces and their feet, and they're saying, holy, 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 God is so holy, he's so powerful, he's so amazing and pure, and we are not. And so they're, they're sheltering themselves from his holiness. And Isaiah sees this, and he's like, how could I be in God's presence like Moses? Don't just remove your sandals. Like, I got to remove myself. I'm not worthy to be here. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst a nation of unclean lips. And I've seen the Lord. And God says, who will, will go for me? Who will be a messenger for me? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. I'll still use me even even though I'm unworthy. And God puts a flaming, hot, burning coal on his tongue. Instead of it destroying his mouth, it purifies his mouth. Instead of judgment destroying Isaiah, God judges and purifies and then sends him out to be his messenger. And he sent him with a message that wouldn't be all that popular. No one really wants to have Isaiah's ministry. Oh yeah, I think I'm going to have Isaiah's ministry. What, what's that? Oh, I'm going to speak uh, judgment to the people, and they're going to ignore me. Okay. How's your ministry going? Oh, great. No one's following me. No one's listening. Okay. That was Isaiah's ministry. But later, after the fact, people would see how all these prophecies 
would come to pass. They would see the fulfillment of what he said, these flash-forward sayings, and they would say, wow, Isaiah is actually one of the greatest prophets that we've seen. So there's, there's, a, a, there's different ways that you can categorize the structure of this book. One common way of viewing it is that chapters 1 through 39 much like maybe the Old Testament, how we might view it, is the living God's judgment and warnings. Uh, there's, there's 39 books in the Old Testament, 39 chapters. So sometimes people make that connection. Of course, the Old Testament actually has so much of God's promises and His grace. But these first 39 chapters focus more on God's judgment and warnings. In chapters 40 to 66... If you think of the, the next uh, books in the Bible, 20, 27 books, is the living God's promises of comfort and redemption. The living God's promises of comfort and redemption. So that's one common way that people break up this book. Uh, J. Alec Mottier, uh, who's a Bible scholar and commentator, says that the Isaianic literature is built around three messianic portraits. Messianic is in that the Messiah, who is this promised one, this anointed one, who would come and save God's people and bring them back into God's kingdom, and he would rule in the world. And so that the, the first messianic portrait is chapters 1 through 37 of the Messiah as king. Chapters 38 to 55 is the Messiah as the servant. And chapters 56 to 66 is the Messiah as the anointed conqueror. And before we get into it, let's just pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, our creator and king, you are the one that the angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we come before you as unworthy in and of ourselves and completely dependent on Jesus and your mercy that you would cleanse us, forgive us, and that you would even use us as your servants, as your children. I pray that you'd speak to us this morning. Give us soft hearts, Lord, that we would not ignore your word, that we would not reject it. Lord, that it would be embedded in our hearts and lived out in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the book of Isaiah, God lovingly warns and promises his people that the only one worthy to trust and serve is the living God. God lovingly warns and promises his people 
that the only one worthy to trust and serve is the living God. Who should we ultimately trust and serve? Only the living God. And he warns us and he promises these things to us. He's the only one worthy. So we're going to look at, firstly, the failure to serve and trust the living God, how this is a, a, a startling reality. Secondly, the price of serving and trusting anything else. And thirdly, the promise of the living God. So let's begin by looking at the failure to serve and trust the living God. I, I would have liked to start the sermon with very happy, cheerful stuff, but the book begins on a awakening note. And so we'll go with that. Israel, God's people, the nation, was called to be God's servant. Consider the call of Israel to be righteous, to have moral integrity, to live in ways of social justice, to be witnesses of the living God to the world around them. They were to reflect his heart to the world. Consider Isaiah chapter 43, 10 to 13. God says, you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration. And my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me and there will be none after me. I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no savior. That is the call. God's people are called to be his witnesses to the world, to reflect what he's like and to live in ways that reflect his character, to show the world that there is no other God but Yahweh. And here's the issue. Chapter one, verse two. God says, listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Any parents ever experienced that before? I loved you, fed you, cared for you, and then you rebelled against me. Why? And, you know, I had it once where one, one of my kids says, what do you do for me? <laughs> Excuse me? Should, should we just sit down for a second? I'm, I'm going to give you, it's going to be a couple hours. God continues to say in verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. That's the issue. Here's the consequences. Verse seven, your land is desolate. Your cities burned down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. And this is the impending destruction that's coming as Assyria and Babylon come in to raid the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. Verse 11 to 13 talks about the insufficient, 
unsatisfactory sacrifices that they give to God. What are all your sacrifices to me? asks the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, and, or male goats. But God, God said in Leviticus, these are kinds of sacrifices that we give when we sin or when we want to come to God. But he says in verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. This is like, I, I, I'm not wanting to pick on a group of people, but I hear so many people from within the Roman Catholic Church who say, well, I just give my offerings, I light my candles, I do these things, and then I can go and sin, and then I go back and do this. And, and it's kind of like you, you, you buy your way out of guilt, and, well, I'm just going to give a sacrifice, and then I can keep doing the stuff that I love doing. And God is saying, this is not what pleases me. And then he says, this is the call for change in verse 16, 17. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove the evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. That is what God desires. For the, them to live with moral integrity and social justice. Conservative Christians are more concerned about moral purity and not as much about social justice. And progressive Christians are more concerned usually about equality, distribution of wealth, social service, and less about moral holiness. Both have blind spots that God calls them to, to change, to repent, to think differently about what it looks like to live with God in humility. The ESV Bible, the Gospel Transformation Version, it, it comments on how the gospel applies to the whole Bible. And, and this is just what, what they comment about this. Through their hardness of heart, they forsook wholehearted trust in the Lord while showing apathy toward injustice and a lack of concern for the needy. Throughout Isaiah, we read sober warnings, and not only against the idolatrous nations, but also against God's own covenant-breaking people. So then God calls the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 to be his spokesperson to the nation of Israel, to the kingdom of Judah. And God lovingly warns and promises his people that the only one worthy to trust and serve is the living God. And there is a price of serving and trusting in other things, in anything else. There is a price. So we're going to look at the price of serving and trusting anything else. 
Israel was supposed to be God's servant. But in Isaiah chapter 42, they are described as blind. 42 verses 16 to 20. He says, I will lead the blind by the way they do not know. I will guide them on paths they have not known. I will turn darkness to light in front of them and rough places into level ground. This is what I will do for them, and I will not abandon them. They will be turned back and utterly ashamed, those who trust in an idol, and say to a cast image, you are our gods. Listen, you deaf, look, you blinds, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf like my messenger who I'm sending? Who is blind like my dedicated one? Or blind like the servant of the Lord? Though seeing many things, you pay no attention. Though his ears are open, he does not listen. This is uh, an indictment to the nation of Israel. The Israelites said, we believe in God. We will be your people but they set their hopes, their trust into other things. And those other things is what they served. They put their trust in human wisdom and pleasure seeking as a ways of coping with the world around them. Isaiah chapter 5, 22 to 23 says, Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves as clever. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine who are champions at pouring beer, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of justice. When it's describing this, like right now, I just think of university. Those who judge themselves clever, you're like, I, I just learned this in poli-sci, guys. Oh, I just took this philosophy 100 course. Let me tell you, I know how it is, okay? And those who are heroes at drinking wine, okay, I just took the, this philosophy course, and man, check out how I, I pour this beer. And then they, they're like, Frank the Tank, Frank the Tank, he can drink so much beer, he's our king. People think, wow, amazing. I'm going to follow that guy for the rest of my life. Everything's going to be great. But both of these will be shocked with judgment coming upon them, God says. The king Hezekiah put his trust in alliances to serve kings in exchange for safety in chapters 28 to 35. And we, we, we know of many alliances across nations to this day. And they don't always work out as people plan them to. Sometimes the nations that they think, oh, I'll have an alliance with them just so they'll give me safety. Actually, that, you know, there's, there's a power imbalance, and there's a lot more pressure than they thought they'd have. And so it was here that these alliances didn't protect Israel. And there's a series of woes, pronouncements of judgment against worldly alliances based on pride and self-reliance in those chapters. Israel puts their trust in a covenant with death. That's referring to the Egyptian god Osiris, the god of death. So they're looking to Egypt. It says in, in chapter 28, 14 to 15. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. 
For you said, we have made a covenant with death, and we have an agreement with Sheol. When the overwhelming cat catastrophe passes through, it will not touch us, because we have made falsehood our refuge and have hidden behind treachery. You think your insurance company will take care of all your worries? Think again. The Israelites put their trust in neighboring nations, alliances with Egypt in chapter 30, and Babylon in chapter 39. The Israelites also put their trust in sorcerers and astrologers. Isaiah 47, 12 to 15. He says, so let the astrologers stand and save you those who observe the stars, those who predict monthly what will happen to you. You know, everyone who looks at the uh, horoscopes in the back of the, the newspaper. Let them save you. Look, they're like stubble. Fire burns them. Some people try to find security in fortune tellers, astrologers, or even financial forecasters. The Israelites put their trust in idols of all kinds. Isaiah 44, verse 9, says, All who make idols are nothing, and what they treasure benefits no one. Their witnesses do not see or know anything, so they will be put to shame. Verse 13, it says, The woodworker stretches out a measuring line, he outlines it with a stylus. He shapes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass and makes it according to a human form like a beautiful person to dwell in a temple. Does our society ever chisel away the figures of people to make them look more beautiful? Maybe digital chisels? To dwell in temples of worship? Verse 14, he cuts down cedars for his use, or he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel, and the rain makes it grow. A person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and warms himself. Also, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in a fire, and he roasts meat on, on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I see the blaze. He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it, says, save me, for you are my god. I think about technology and our phones, and how they can be good tools, like a fire, like a baking oven. But then they, if we are not aware, they, they can be titans, as someone has put it. If you don't use it like a tool, it will be a titan over you. It will control you. It will destroy your life. And like this, there's this one thing. It's, it's, it's a piece of wood but he's finding all these different purposes for it. And it's beneficial, it's helpful, right? Keeps him warm, feeds him, different stuff like that. But then he becomes overly dependent on it. And he says, you are my God, save me. I need this piece of wood. 
Why do we turn to dead idols instead of the living God? It might be because they're so tangible, so visible, so immediate. You just wait a few seconds and you get a, a like or a heart. And it gives you a boost of dopamine. You have to wait to hear on God's word and it takes a little bit of time. It can be so hard to trust someone you wait for, to trust someone you must wait for. It can be hard to hang on to what we don't see, but dead idols don't deliver. They don't give you the life that you are seeking. It's junk food, and God's offering you a feast. But sometimes you have to wait for that good food to cook. Idols only bring an illusion of comfort and security. And when we place our trust in dead idols, it changes our allegiance, our souls, our morals, our standards, our actions, and our hopes. It leads to injustice. When company CEOs and bosses make decisions that make them more money at the expense of the workers' own well-being, overwork, Unhealthy working conditions like sweatshops or Amazon fulfillment centers. Too much pressure to perform because they make productivity an idol. They make profit an idol. Or building infrastructure at the expense of the environment and neighbors' health. I saw a Vox documentary on pig farming and how they would just put all these pigs in these unhealthy spaces and then all of the refuse would go into these lakes and the lakes would seep into the water systems and there'd be higher concentrations of all these types of sicknesses in the neighboring communities. Casinos that cash in on retirees, gouging their pockets because they know that they'll be addicted. Banking on the immediate needs of low-income clients. These money loan companies, predatory loans. Or maybe on a slower, uh, smaller scale, instead of tipping the server or giving to charity, we're too busy spending money on ourselves or saving for our early retirement. Now, I, I also want to keep in mind of the context that we have had amazing giving here. We have had selfless, sacrificial giving. I want to remember that context. But I'm explaining this is what happens in the world when people don't have God as the center. And you and I, our hearts can fluctuate between this extreme of having money or other things as our idol and having God as the center of our lives. This having idols in anything leads us to moral unrighteousness. Isaiah 29, 13 says, The Lord said, These people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me. 
and human rules direct their worship of me. People are just going through the motions. Sure, they're saying the right things. They have the, the right doctrine, but their hearts are far from God. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, All of us have become like something unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment or filthy rags. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. So it's not just what you believe in, but what's going on deep in your heart. How you trust things to keep you safe and secure and fulfilled. And this changes how you view life and how you live your life. So you do community service, good for you. But do you do it to get favor from heaven or to get good karma? Sure, you give to charities, but do you do it largely because it gives a good tax return? You serve at church, God bless you. But do you do it to get noticed, to get approval, recognition? The secular person giving advice for all these things says, do these things to be financially secure. Diversify your, your investments. Put your money in different stocks because some may crash or deplete, but others will be sustained and grow. This is how you remain secure. Or hustle hard to get rich quick and retire early financially independent, and then you'll be secure. Religion says, do these things and you'll be safe. Do all these good acts. Give these sacrifices. Beat yourself up morally and you'll be secure in God. And the gospel message is that you may do the right things, but with the wrong heart. God wants your heart, and you need Jesus to change your heart. God doesn't want you to diversify where you invest your heart. He wants to be the sole stock, your highest hope where you put everything in, you're all in for Jesus. Not, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to do these things, and I'm, I'm going to like put a little bit of my stock in Jesus, but I, just in case, I'm going to diversify my investments. I'm going to put my hope and my trust in all these other things. God wants your whole heart. And when we turn and trust and serve other things, it brings natural consequences and divine consequences. Isaiah 17, verse 7 to 8 says, On that day, people will look to their maker and will turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to the altars they made with their hands or to the asherahs and shrines they made with their fingers. On that day, when things are crumbling, when destruction comes, when hardships come, when the final, the day of the Lord, when he comes to bring accountability to the world, people will look to the God, to the living God, to the creator, and consider the things that they once worshipped. During COVID-19 and natural, am I not allowed to say COVID-19? 
There's a, a pandemic going on in the world. Did you know that? Is it stressing you out? Awesome. I hear a bunch of no's. There are natural disasters going around the world. Ice caps are melting. Forests are burning. Species are becoming extinct. And God is shaking us out of complacency. Out of illusions of safety. Illusions of self-sufficiency. Illusions that dead idols will give us life. Yesterday, I, I've been following this, this devotional by Timothy Keller on wisdom. And yesterday's reading was identify your idols. I said, okay, God, this is very timely. He says, you can believe in God, yet still trust something else for your real significance and happiness, which is therefore your real God. We hide how we do this from ourselves, and it is only when something goes wrong with, say, your career or your family, that you realize it is much more important to you than the Lord himself. He goes on to say that there are excessive emotions surrounding things you make the functional trust of your heart. Excessive emotions. Whether it's your career, wealth, Spouse, children, some romantic relationship, you will be inordinately shaken, anxious, angry, or despondent in despair if anything threatens them. They cloud your judgment, distort your vision of yourself and the world. That's what happens when we put our ultimate hope, trust in anything other than the living God. And in his, his book, Timothy Kelly wrote a great book called Counterfeit Gods. And in that book he says, if our counterfeit God is threatening, th is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We do not say, oh, what a shame, how difficult but rather, this is the end. There is no hope if that is our functional God, our counterfeit God. God asks his people, who will you trust and serve? Where will you put your hope? Dead idols or the living God? Dead idols or the living God? Who will you serve? You serve what you trust the most. You serve what you trust the most. You live for what you think will give you life. You live for what you think will give you life. But God is the living God who gives us life. So God shakes us to wake us 
from the, to the realization that dead idols don't deliver and everything else gives false security, illusions of security, and only the living God gives life. God lovingly warns and promises his people that the only one worthy to trust and serve is the living God. He promises his people. Now let's consider the promise of the living God. He gives the promise of the remnant, of the true servant. It's as though God has called Israel to be his servant, but it's like there's gold with a lot of crude elements and dross around, and it needs to be burned up so that all that is not true, all that does not fit, burns up, and what is true and genuine remains. And that is the remnant Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 2 says, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is King David's father. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now this is starting to describe a very small remnant that would actually be one person, this true servant who would have the spirit of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, the spirit of the fear of the Lord would be on him. This is the promise of the faithful servant in chapter 42, 1 to 8. It says, this is my servant, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, I delight in him. I've put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. And he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or discouraged until he has established justice on earth. He is the faithful servant. This servant will open the eyes of Israel and allow them to see the difference between the living God and dead idols. It says in verse 6, continuing on, I am the Lord, I have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name. And I will give my glory to, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. This faithful servant will help to bring light and sight to the eyes of the blind Israel. And he's a successfully faithful servant. Isaiah 52, 13 to 15 says, See, see, my servant will be successful. Everyone wants a successful person, right, to lead them. 
He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. This sprinkling is referring to this spiritual practice of sprinkling the blood of a sacrificial animal over the people to cleanse them before God. And this faithful servant would be successful, but would be disfigured by some sort of beating to the point of blood pouring out And that their beating and the blood would sprinkle nations. The living God's successful servant was also the suffering servant. In chapter 53, verse 5 to 6 says, But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Verse 11 to 12 continues. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will carry their iniquities. He will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death. He served to death. And he was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. God's servant takes on the punishment that the many people deserve so that they would have peace. And Jesus comes onto the, the scene about 700 years later. He stands up in the synagogue and reads Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 4. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that passage continues to say, the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. When Jesus read this passage, he he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, and he sat down. Jesus was declaring that he is the servant spoken of in Isaiah. Jesus is the promised suffering servant who lived perfectly faithful when we failed, He cleansed the temple of social injustice to make space for all peoples to come in. He declared himself to be Emmanuel, 
the everlasting God and the prince who took on the punishment that our sins deserve to grant us peace. The living God in flesh who served us to the point of death. Put your trust in this living God. Put your trust in this living God and receive his life and his peace. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not turn away those who turn away from their idolatry. Isaiah 26, 12 to 13 says, Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our work for us. Lord, our God, lords other than you have owned us, but we remember your name alone. Tim Keller mentions that in the midst of the great financial crisis of 2008-2009, he listened to a man recount that three years before that crisis, he had become a Christian. And in his ultimate security had shifted from money to his relationship with God through Christ. And this man said, if this economic meltdown had happened more than three years ago, well, I don't know how I could have faced it. I, I don't know how I could have faced it, how I would have even kept going. Today, I can tell you honestly, I have never been happier in my life. Because even when the storm rose and shook on the house, it was on the firm foundation of the rock of Christ. Because no matter what you face in your life, if the living God is your ultimate trust and treasure, you will not be shaken to despair. You will not be destroyed. You will survive. And somehow, mysteriously, you might thrive. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 2 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You might think, Addison, I have sinned so much, I have so many idols, I have idols that I worship way more than God and it feels like I'm hopeless. But here it doesn't say you've received from the Lord's hand almost enough for your sins. It's not even saying you've received enough for your sins. You've received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins. More than you owe has been paid. 
You've been given credit into your account. If you make the living God the Lord of your life. Don't cling to dead idols. It's really not worth it. Why waste your time? Why waste your life? Clinging to a dead idol that won't deliver. While the living God reaches out his hand. The hands that bore the nails on the cross for you. The living God who gave his life for you reaches out to you and says, reach out to me and I'll receive you. I'll give you life. I'll pay for your sins and I'll even call you into relationship with me that you would bring life to this world. Oh, living God, we turn to you. You are worthy. You are worthy of everything in our lives. Of our greatest affection, our deepest trust, of our selfless service, you are worthy. Lord, we thank you in the ways that your spirit has highlighted idols in our hearts. And we thank you for the joy that we can have of just releasing our grasp from these things, reordering our hearts as you've created us. We turn to you right now, and we declare that we need you. And if we have you, we are safe. Yahweh saves. You alone can save. You alone, Lord. We thank you for giving us life when we were dead in our trespasses. Thank you, Jesus. everything in our lives be for you. Let us be your witnesses, your servants, knowing that you live the perfect life that we failed to live. Thank you. Amen.